0: And I will call your attention to Matthew or Mark, I'm sorry, chapter 6. We're going to read verse 45 through 52. So if you'd open your Bibles and stand with me, we'll read the word of God together. Mark chapter 6, verse 45 through 52. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of to Beseda while he himself was sending the crowd away after bidding them farewell he left for the mountain to pray and when it was evening the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land seeing them straining at the oars for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Father, help us this morning as we come to your word. You are the one who opens the eyes of the blind. You give hearing to the deaf. You give understanding to the human heart. God, we ask for your grace. We ask for the teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit. As we read your word, may we bow, humbly bow before the God of heaven. And say amen in Jesus name. Please be seated. So this morning I'm going to be reading a lot. But it's going to be the Bible. So you're going to be blessed. This account, I got to tell you, I was in my personal devotion time some years back. I've been reading through the Gospel of Mark. I got to chapter 6, verse 52, and I got—I was arrested. I was completely stunned when I read, their heart was hardened. We're talking about the apostles. How could this be? The 12, right? So follow along as I read these verses. This next set of verses is in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those who he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority and to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. Uh, To them he gave the name which means sons of thunder And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. In Luke's account of this, we read in Luke chapter six, it was at this time he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. Whom he also named as apostles. So we have the 12 apostles, the 12 men chosen by God, appointed by Christ. Their hearts were hardened. In Mark chapter 4, first 32 verses of that chapter, the mystery of the kingdom of God was given to the apostles. But in this first section, uh, Jesus was teaching the people using parables, which the people didn't understand. But in verse 11 of Mark 4, we read this. He was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, get everything in parables. And this is an astounding verse. I'm not going to comment to it, but listen. Verse 12 of Mark 4. So that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not un- understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. Christ personally explained everything to his disciples. Look at verse 33 of Mark 4. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it to the crowd. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. But their hearts were hard. Jesus explained everything to the 12, teaching them, revealing to them the hidden secrets of the kingdom of God. They were chosen by God, these 12. The mysteries of the kingdom were given to the 12. Jesus has privately explained everything to the 12 apostles. Their hearts were hard. The 12 witnessed Jesus' uh, authority over the weather in dramatic fashion. Look at verse 35 of Mark 4. On that day when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the winds were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. Can you imagine? And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The 12 witnessed his authority over the demons. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, we read this. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up. And bowed down before him, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. One short comment about that verse. Jesus was not unaware of the demon's name. He made the demon announce himself for the benefit of the disciples, to just to show his authority over the demonic realm and over this demon in particular. And he began the demon to implore Jesus earnestly not to send or they, not to send them out of the country. Now, there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirit entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon possessed, sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion. And they became frightened and they began to implore him to leave the region. And he was getting into the boat as he was getting into the boat. The man who had been demon possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he didn't let him, but he said to him, go home to your people. And report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Again in Mark 4, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus showed his authority over sickness and death. And the 12 witnessed this event. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him And a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much uh, at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I'll get well." Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus perceiving in himself that power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And the disciple said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And while he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and the people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him, putting them all out. He took along the child's father and mother and his own companions, and entered the room where the child was. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk for she was 12 years old.
1: And immediately they
0: were all completely astounded. In Mark chapter 6, verse 7, we see Jesus uh, giving his power and authority to the apostles, sending them out to heal, to cast out demons, and to preach the gospel. Verse 7, and he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. In verse 12, then they went out and preached that men should repent, and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick and healing them. I'm reading to you the accounts on purpose. Hang in there. Mark 6, verse 34. They witnessed Jesus' power in feeding the 5,000. It's thought that there were as many as 20,000, but even 5,000 from five loaves and two fish is miraculous. But they watched this. When Jesus went ashore, verse 34 of Mark 6, he saw a large crowd. And he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and it's already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And they went uh, went and found it. And they said that we have five loaves and two fish. And he commanded them to all sit down by groups on the green grass. And they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves and kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up 12 full baskets of broken pieces and also the fish. There were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Finally, we get to the account of him walking on the water. He demonstrates his authority to the 12 over the laws of nature, over the law of physics. Verse 48, again, seeing them straining at the oars, Mark 6, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And they then he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped and they were utterly astonished for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. The twelve apostles were chosen by God. The mysteries of God's kingdom was given to them. Jesus privately explained everything to the twelve They witnessed Jesus' authority over the weather, over demons, over sickness and death. Uh, They were sent out with his own power and authority, and they personally, through the power and authority of Christ, healed the sick and cast out demons and proclaimed the gospel with boldness. They witnessed his miracle in feeding thousands. And they witnessed his authority over the laws of nature through the walking on the water and the calming of the storm. So it seems that the Lord was deliberately testing their faith through the trial of the storm on the lake in order to reveal their hard heartedness. John records that the seas were rough. The winds were blowing strong and that they rowed out like three to four miles into the middle of the lake they were fighting and struggling against the wind and the waves, John chapter 6. And in Matthew 14, it says that they were beaten by the waves and the wind was against them. And then, of course, here in Mark 6, seeing them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Christ sent the apostles into the storm and then watched them struggle against it according to his own plan and for his own purpose. Listen, God does allow, even decrees the storm for his people. By his mercy and grace, he shows us his faithfulness and power when we are most desperate. So many times when we're in the middle of a storm, it feels hopeless and dark, inescapable, overwhelming. We may even think, God doesn't see. Now remember, these disciples were in the middle of the lake, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the storm. They felt helpless and alone, but they weren't alone and help was on the way. Verse 48, Mark 6, seeing them straining at the oars for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He came to them when they didn't expect it. Remember, Jesus was on the shore. He's more than three to four miles away. Um, it was dark out sometime between three and six in the morning, and it was stormy. But he saw them, and he came to them. I had to write this. Jesus Christ is Lord of the storm. Amen. Amen. What a comfort. What a comfort to know that Christ sees us when we can't see him. Listen to this verse. We just sang it. Christ, our hope in life and death, who holds our faith when fears arise, who stands above the stormy trial, who sends the waves that bring us nigh into the shore, the rock of Christ. Oh, sing hallelujah. Hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah now and ever we confess Christ, our hope in life and death. Spurgeon said this, I've learned to kiss the wave that threw me against the rock of ages. Jesus would reveal to the apostles their hard heartedness. Even though they had been chosen by God even though they had God's secrets revealed to them and his mysteries explained to them personally by Christ himself, even though they personally witnessed Jesus' authority over the weather and his authority over the demons, as we mentioned before, his authority to to heal the sick and raise the dead, even though they were personally sent out by Christ and given power and authority over demons and sickness and given boldness to preach, Even though they personally witnessed Jesus feed thousands of people from just five loaves and two fish, even though they personally witnessed Jesus defy the laws of nature, after all of this, their hearts were hardened. I'll never forget the moment. It was an early morning, and I thought, what about my heart? What about yours? So why? We'll look again back at Mark chapter 6, verse 52. Well, 51 says they were utterly astounded, okay, because they didn't understand the message of the loaves. So just what is the message? What is the message of the loaves? What insight was missed by the 12 apostles? What was it that they didn't understand about the loaves, which caused them to be utterly astounded? The Greek word for that word astounded is um, existeme. That's a rough pronunciation, existeme. But it literally means out of mind or crazy. It also means to be uh, moved out of a place or state. To be moved. The apostles were literally moved from faith. To fear in this instance, from belief to unbelief. They were utterly stunned, amazed, astonished at this miracle of Jesus walking on the water to the point of hard-hearted unbelief. Why? Listen to Matthew Henry on this point. It is for want of a right understanding of Christ's former works that we are transported, moved to the thought of his present works, moved away from as if there never were the like before. In other words, because we don't rightly understand or believe the works that Christ has accomplished, we're moved away from rightly understanding and believing the present works of Christ, which he is presently accomplishing by his own wisdom, power, and grace. Spurgeon, again, I love (laughs) our dear brother. He said this, hard hearts and painful unbeliefs spring up in the waste places where we bury our forgotten mercies. The apostles' problem, they didn't rightly understand or believe the past works of Christ So they couldn't rightly understand or believe the present work of Christ. How can anyone rightly understand the works of God? We have the answer because the question was asked in John chapter six, verse 28. Therefore they said to him, Christ, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work of God is to believe in Christ, to look to him, not to miss the message that God came to earth to save sinners and to bring us safely home to glory. This is the message of the loaves. And this is the message the apostles didn't rightly understand. It's the message we must believe and never forget. It's the gospel. God's message to man is Christ, Jesus Christ. Listen to God himself. Luke chapter nine, verse 35. This is the account of the transfiguration. And Peter's got a great idea, right? Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son. My chosen one, listen to him. Listen to Christ. The whole of Scripture, in fact, the entirety of the Bible, is the message of Christ. Psalm 40, verse 7 and 8. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. In the scroll of the book, the volume of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do thy will. Oh, God, your law is written on my heart. And I know David wasn't writing that about himself. It was a prophetic word pointing to Messiah, pointing to Christ. Now, how do I know that to be true? The writer of Hebrews picks this up in Hebrews chapter 10. It's Christ, the whole of the scripture. So I'm going to something that has helped me tremendously you want a key to understanding the Bible? Look for Christ. He's the hermeneutic. He's the key to unlock the mysteries. And Paul picks up this notion in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. The summing up of all things in Christ, things in, heaven, in the heavens and on the earth. Christ is the sum. It's him. Listen to Paul's point in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. His point is Christ, then everything else. Romans eight thirty-two. Christ, then everything else. It's the argument, the classic argument of the greater to the lesser. Demonstrating God's willingness to freely give us all things. Why? Because he freely gave us Christ. The verse reads this way. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? If we forget and look past God's greatest work in giving us Christ, his own son. We will be hardened to remember his lesser work in freely giving us all things. It's the math put forth in the scripture. So there's a warning, there are many warnings, but the one warning I'm gonna focus on this morning is in Hebrews chapter three. Verse 12, take care, brethren, be careful that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls from away from the living God. I looked up that word falls because the warning is to the brethren and the warning is to us who believe that we could fall away not lose your salvation you cannot lose your salvation since you didn't gain it you can't lose it christ gained our salvation christ keeps us but what does it mean to, what is the writer talking about this falling away again in the greek apostemai cause to withdraw actively uh, instigate to a revolt kind of back up reflexively to desist, desert, stand aloof. An evil heart of unbelief takes you there. Be warned. So what are we to do? We're warned. Look at verse 13 of Hebrews 3. But encourage one another. Day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Brothers and sisters, I need you. And you need me. We need to encourage one another, to provoke one another to love and good deeds and so much the more as we see the day of Christ approaching. Right? Amen. For we have... Become, verse 14, partakers of Christ. That is the reminder. We belong to Christ. He is our God. He came to earth to bring us to be with Himself. We've been, we, be, we have become partakers of Christ. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end, I realize that sounds like a condition, but that's what a Christian does. A Christian holds fast. Firm to the end because it's not the Christian's strength, it's God's strength. God rescued us, God keeps us, and God will glorify us in Christ. Here's a wonderful verse, it's not actually in my notes, but Romans chapter 8, verse 11. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. Christ. Okay, so with that in mind, a solution, another solution. Well, (laughs) expand it. Look at uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Don't. Look away from Christ, stand, brothers and sisters. Um, fixing our eyes, verse three. I hesitated for a minute, but consider Him again. Look to Him has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What's the solution in the storm? Eyes on Christ. Help me, Lord. I am distressed. I need help. Doesn't really matter the problem, right? Is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer is no. But this looking to Christ Becomes precious more and more to the believer. All that he is, all that he's done, all that he means to us. Paul said this in Philippians chapter 3 that I may know him, verse 10, and the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. That's the goal, that's the prize to live with God eternally, right? Verse 12, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on, I press on, forgetting the world The flesh and the devil, I press on to know Christ, to know him. Toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In Colossians chapter three, very familiar verses. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I love that. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And then, Tim or uh, Paul, you know, this is toward the end of his life. He's in prison, he's cold. Remembers his young son in the faith, Timothy, his protege. Remember Jesus Christ. Him risen from the dead. That would be important to remember, right? As Paul's leaving the earth, he wants his son in the faith to remember Christ. Risen from the dead. Our life is in Christ. Our life is in Christ. Listen, we must not miss the message of the loaves. We must guard against an evil, unbelieving heart that is easily deceived by sin and would lead us away from Jesus. We must look to Christ, look to his wisdom, look to his power and his strength for all things at all times, whether needed or wanted. We must remember all his work and all he has done for us. Psalm 103, it's got to be a favorite, right? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. What are they? Who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, Who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. I'm going to read to you a portion of a sermon preached by Spurgeon on a Thursday evening, April 12th, 1866 at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. So it's lengthy, but listen. The text is Matthew chapter 9 verse 28. Jesus saith unto them believe ye that I am able to do this. I want to lay special emphasis on the word this in the text. Believe ye that I am able to do this. The question of Jesus, the question of Jesus referred to one particular thing. It was not intended to apply to the general power of Christ to heal the sick or to raise the dead, but it concerned the specific malady from which those two men were suffering. And the question meant, did they believe that that Christ was able to cure their blindness? Among professing Christians, there is much so-called faith that is not really faith. Many of us profess much more in our creeds than we believe in our hearts and we hold a great deal more in theory than we do in reality. For instance, I suppose there is no professor of religion here who would dispute the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to do anything and everything. We believe that he has all power in heaven and in earth, and yet, if it came to be a matter of personal detail, and he said to us, believe ye that I am able to do this, we might not all be able to answer as promptly and as confidently as the blind men. Yea, Lord. I'm going to speak about this matter, and I start with a very simple statement that faith, insofar as it is true, deals immediately with a case in hand. True faith believes that Jesus Christ is able to do this. It believes, of course, that he's able to do 20,000 other things, but it believes specifically that he is able to do this, to forgive this sin of which I'm so deeply conscious, to remove this trial with which I am so sorely afflicted, to sustain me under this temptation which so fiercely assails me, to strengthen me to accomplish this duty which so clearly devolves upon me. As each special case arises, faith will exercise itself upon that particular thing and believe that Christ is able to do this. There are solemn thoughts connected with unbelief concerning this, which Christ is able to do. Over there is a brother who is in such a plight that he thinks there is no way of deliverance for him out of it. He has a task before him, which he hardly dares ask his Lord to enable him to perform because he lacks the necessary faith in his Lord's power and willingness to help him. Now, my dear friend, as you are in doubt in this case, I wanna ask you, what is to prevent you from doubting in the next difficulty that occurs to you? And then in the next, after that and so on, you say that it is only upon this one point that you are in doubt and that you think you have already, you have very good reasons for not believing in this particular case. But the next circumstance that occurs to you will, will very probably furnish you with, with just as weighty reasons for doubting. And so will it be with each succeeding case as it arises. Seems to me that you are shut up in this alternative, either to trust God in this case, or else to confess that you do not intend to believe him in any case. I know you will urge that the present case is a very peculiar one. But I shall remind you the next one will also be a very peculiar one. I've not lived as long as some of you have, but during the years that I have been able to, I have been able to observe what has been passing around me. I have noticed that every year of my life has been a crisis in the affairs of the nation, at least so the papers have always told us. And so have some good people told us. I think it is very likely that the present time is a most solemn crisis. And I also think with equally good reason that this is a most solemn crisis in your history. And that if you do not believe now, you are not likely to believe in the crisis, the next crisis that comes to you. The fact is you must either believe God always or you must never believe him. If you think Christ is not able to do this, forgive this sin, remove this trial, overcome this temptation, or strengthen you for this duty, you will probably think the same when the next testing time comes. Moreover, it seems to me that if you doubt God concerning any one trial, you give up the whole case. You would have me believe that your present trial is a very peculiar and strange one. Well, suppose I admit that it is. Yet still, if you do not believe concerning this, You have given up the whole case for what Christ claims is omnipotence. And if there be any one thing that he cannot do, then he is not omnipotent. If there be any one heart too hard for him to break, if there be any one sin too strong for him to enable me to abandon it, then he is not omnipotent. If you look this thought fairly in the face, I think you will scarcely dare to rob your Lord, of one of the most glorious of his attributes. You would surely hesitate to put forth that right hand of yours to snatch from his crown, one of its most precious gems. No, you would sooner lose your life than commit so traitorous a crime as that. Yet, you practically commit it if you do not believe that he is able to do this, whatever this may be. And henceforth, you do virtually say that he is not almighty. Besides, your doubt concerning God's power sets up a new God. Do you start in alarm at that statement? It's true. For that which is mightiest in the world is God. But if there be anything which surpasses the power of God, something that is more potent than omnipotence, that something must be God. I only put the matter thus to show you that you are obliged to believe that God can deliver you out of your present desperate plight, or else you must become an idolater. You must feel that your difficulties and trials are greater than God, and therefore you deify them. Of course, you don't mean to do that. You feel a cold shiver go through you at the bare thought of such blasphemy. Yet you practically do it Whenever you doubt that God is able to do this, whatever this may be. Further, to doubt God's power to do this, whatever it may be, is impugning every attribute of the divine character. I could prove this if I had more time, but I will indicate only one attribute of God. That is his truthfulness. Take such promises as this. He shall call upon me. And I will answer him and I will be with him in trouble. Psalm ninety-one, fifteen. Now, if you doubt God's power to fulfill that promise, you practically impugn his veracity. Can you calmly contemplate such a sin that would be? Yet it seems to me that you cannot avoid committing that sin unless now by simple faith you believe that he is able to do this. But grant that God is omnipotent. Really grant at one time, accept that truth in your heart, and then you will feel that there remains no strait into which you can be brought, out of which he cannot deliver you, and that there is no temptation which may assail you from which he cannot preserve you, and that there can be no position of peril, in which he cannot protect you, and out of which he cannot bring you unharmed. May the Holy Spirit graciously reveal to us the unsafe, treacherous, boggy pit that would swallow us up if we doubt that God is able to do this. And may he enable us to realize that it is safe walking and happy walking when we walk by faith. Let me close with this verse. Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe. Believe what? That he is God. Must believe that he is God and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. Lamentations 3:25. So, what's the message of the loaves? Jesus Christ, come to earth. Our God, our savior, our Lord. His promise cannot be broken. His word cannot fail. He is faithful. We must never forget his glorious, mighty works, which he has done so that we do not miss his glorious, mighty works that he's doing. We can and we must completely trust him, knowing that he is able to do this, whatever that may be. You know why we can? Because of him. Don't be fooled to look to your own strength. Look to Christ. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Help us, Lord. Help us all in faith to believe the word of God, to believe the promise of God, to know Christ, to to run to him, to find help in grace in time of need since he has brought us into the very throne room. Of God. We love you, Lord. We love your word. We love your truth. Cleanse our hearts of sin. Convict us, Lord, of a heart of evil unbelief. Grant us repentance for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name.